0: We'll Welcome to Facts Machine. My name is Noah, and I'm here with Emily and Rob for a high-proof episode of our podcast. You won't need a mixer to down these smooth, smoky facts, after which will only remain the sweet aftertaste of learning. Like Ray Bradbury said, beer is intellectual. What a shame so many idiots drink it. So take a shot, chug a beer, sip some wine, and get ready to overindulge in knowledge. Each of us will share some tipsy trivia, and we'll wrap up with a pub-style trivia quiz inspired by the theme. So, Emily, what do you have for us today? Cheers,
1: Noah. So, (laughs) this week I learned that Johnny Appleseed, memorialized in American folklore as an adventuring gentle soul who wandered the Midwest seeding acres upon acres of the trees that lend him his name, wasn't actually growing apples for healthy snacking and keeping the doctor away. Rather, his apples were designated for perhaps less wholesome, but indubitably more enjoyable purpose. Booze. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think it's necessary to put this in context, since it's not like America was just innocently munching on apples until Johnny Appleseed came along and gave them something worth fermenting. Uh, In the 18th and 19th centuries, in much of America, as elsewhere in the world, alcoholic beverages were generally safer than water, which is more susceptible to contamination by bacteria and other nasty stuff. So as a consequence, apples were much more commonly consumed in the form of cider, so much so that Howard Means, author of Johnny Appleseed, The Man, The Myth, The American Story, describes life on the frontier as being lived, and I quote, through an alcoholic haze. <laughs> uh, so to put this in context, the average frontier settler drank a reported 10.5 ounces of hard cider per day, which is pretty substantial when you consider that nowadays, the average American drinks 20 ounces of water per day. Wow. So into this habitually sloshed scene, entered a young John Chapman, better known now as Johnny Appleseed, who began his career as an itinerant nurseryman, or tree planter, uh, following an apprenticeship at an apple orchard in the early 1800s. So frontier law during this time dictated that you could claim a 100-acre tract of land in the Northwest Territory, um, in particular the land west of the early Ohio settlements, by forming a permanent homestead. And one way to prove that your homestead was permanent was by planting 20 peach trees and 50 apple trees upon it. Mm. Seeing an opportunity ripe for the picking, Johnny began a lifelong career in what I think can be appropriately described as adventure capitalism. (laughs) 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 By by planting orchards from Pennsylvania to Illinois ahead of his fellow frontiersmen and then flipping his prefab legally defined homesteads to the highest bidder. Additionally, as a strict adherer to the practices of the Swedenborgian church, which is not pronounced that ridiculously, but I couldn't resist, (laughs) uh, Johnny refrained from grafting any of his apple trees and grew them only from seeds, meaning that the resultant apples were really tart and, as such, not much good for anything other than cidering, which was fine, since that was, as I mentioned earlier, a very profitable use for apples.
2: The religion band, the grafting of apples, was it?
1: Yes, it was seen <laughs> as like ungodly. harming the trees, basically, because uh, you're like uh, chopping branches off and then sticking them and wrapping them onto other trees. Wow, it's kind of a violent, but also very cruel. Or sorry, not cruel, very cool process. And that it even works and grows apples is amazing to me.
0: But I mean, you do that with wine too. Um, there's this oh, like. Really? basically like worldwide there's this um all the old world wines um are like susceptible to some fungus that attacks their roots so they they basically just grow a a vine of a, a particular cultivar that's not susceptible to this very particular uh contamination um then they cut that down and they like cut a little notch in the base of it so it keeps all of its roots and stuff and then they cut sort of the the opposite like little v into the other one uh and they just stick it right on top of them and they'll grow together um, and sort of the 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 vine that would otherwise be susceptible to this um infection um no longer has that problem because it doesn't actually have the roots from its own organism Wow. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, that's grafting. Like, it's literally just sticking a branch of one plant or tree onto another, and then it'll kind of seek Mm -hmm. nutrients from the parent plant. It's crazy. So I will concede that, despite what I said earlier, our image of Johnny Appleseed is not completely inaccurate. He did, in fact, wander the Midwestern frontier, about 100,000 square miles of it, in fact, Um, and did carry his characteristic sack full of apple seeds, though the tin pot hat is disputed, but maybe that's just the hallucination from the frontier alcoholic haze that I referenced earlier. (laughs) But regardless, I think the true story of Johnny Appleseed as an entrepreneurial settlement-surfing freelancer even better captures the American imagination, and not only because his appearance would probably blend in very well with Brooklyners nowadays. Brooklynites, (laughs) Brooklynites nowadays. So one other thing that I kind of want to mention about Johnny Appleseed and his legacy um, in relation to alcohol and cider in particular. So he, like many other well-loved elements of American culture, was also a target of teetotaling fanaticism during Prohibition. And as his apple trees were indelibly associated with cider, um, actually a lot of his orchards were destroyed. And we don't have any of his trees today because during Prohibition, axe-wielding FBI agents and also temperance crusaders chopped them and burned them down (laughs) during Prohibition. In addition to this, uh, part of the notion that we have of Johnny Appleseed nowadays as, again, this kind of wholesome figure uh, who just seeded apple trees everywhere for America to munch on, uh, was also propagated by the Women's Christian Temperance Union um, with the idea of sort of softening and rebranding his image and, again, kind of taking any element of alcohol from American history for the sake of the children, and you know, having a more temperate, pious society. However, there is still one known remaining Johnny Appleseed-planted tree, and it can be found in Savannah, Ohio. Um, it is certified as the last survivor of the thousands that he planted over 150 years ago. And something that I find kind of funny: uh, the type of apple tree that it is is called a Rambo tree, which is pretty badass. No <laughs> wonder it survived, um, and it is still growing apples to this day. So good job, Rambo tree.
0: So an interesting fact about apples. Do you guys know uh, why we think or like why in the Western tradition that we think that the forbidden fruit was an apple, even though it is not? Why do we think so? You're not going to know it. (laughs) You you can guess if you want. All I know is that the Latin word for apple is malice. That is exactly
1: it. Whoa. I'm very impressed. So that's part way there,
0: but I'm going to give you full credit for that. Heck yeah. It's just the, (laughs) the, uh, there's a theory that we think the forbidden fruit was an apple either because of a misunderstanding of or a deliberate pun on the similarity of the Latin words for evil and apple. So there's a native Latin word "malum," which means evil, from the adjective "malice," mm-hmm. and then "malum," another Latin noun that was actually borrowed from Greek, which means apple. Mm-hmm. So there, there's this thinking that it was close enough, so they just kind of thought, "Oh, this would be kind of nice," if, <laughs> yeah. um, or maybe possibly that they read it was the tree of like evil, and that they were like, "It's the tree of good and apples." <laughs> <laughs> Clearly,
2: <laughs> I remember hearing, like. In, in some religious ed class when I was much younger, that like they, they also said, like oh, it wasn't an apple. It was probably a pomegranate.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of other theories. that um, Some people think it was grapes. Some think people think it was figs. Uh, pomegranates also up there. Hmm. Um, a lot of the theories about pomegranates seem to be related to the fact that there are a lot of pomegranate trees in the area that the Garden of Eden is supposed to be located, and not a lot of those theories take it for granted that the Garden of Eden didn't really exist. Hmm.
2: So <laughs> it's just, you know... Wasn't it in, like, Nashville?
0: Isn't that where we... we... (laughs) No, I think the um, Church of Latter-day Saints, as we'll say, uh, thinks that it was somewhere in, like, I think it's Mississippi or Missouri. Oh, yeah. Um, Somewhere in the American South was the real Garden of Eden.
2: I was looking into this a little bit, and I just thought I would look up... I would consider Johnny Appleseed an arborist. Um, I was like, who else is a famous arborist that we could talk about? Or someone who, like, dealt with trees? And if you go to the Wikipedia page for notable arborists, you will be... Really disappointed by what it takes to be a notable <laughs> arborist. And so some of them are legit. There's Francis Bartlett, the world's leading scientist on trees and shrub care. Um, there is um, Alex Shigo, the father of modern abor culture. Um, and there are like all kinds, there maybe three or four famous scientists. And then you get things like Chuck Lavelle, who is a two time recipient of the Georgia Tree Farmer of the Year <laughs> Award and sometime
0: keyboardist for the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Sometimes oh, keyboardist? Yeah. Sounds like he's a notable <laughs> back of keyboardist for the rolling they <laughs> just also like Oh, so, so maybe, maybe that's it. It's, it's a notable person who is an arborist. arborist. Yeah. Uh, not someone who's like Not notable chief. for their
1: arborism. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> because
2: another one is Liam McGough, who I, I don't think any of us have ever heard of. Because he was on one season of British Big Brother and he finished third, and he was a tree surgeon. And he is on the list of ten notable arborists on Wikipedia's Notable (laughs) Arborist page. And my favorite of this entire list of people who I don't think should be considered notable arborists (laughs) are Canopy Cat Rescue, which is a company that has their own Animal Planet show that started airing in May 2015 called Tree Tap Cat Rescue, in which (laughs) episodes answered two compelling questions. One can the cat be rescued from a tall tree? And two, who is the cat's owner? <laughs> Wait, so
1: do they plant trees for the show?
2: <laughs> so because they, they deal they in trees. trees, like they, they Oh, mean, that's
1: all it takes. Yeah. Okay.
2: <laughs> yeah. There's a very, very weak connection
0: here.
1: That's, yeah, it is a pretty low bar. That's hmm. fair.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Emily. Alright, Rob. Bottoms up. All right. Thank you, Noah. This week, I learned
2: that one of the greatest riots in U.S. Army history occurred on the West Point campus on Christmas 1826 in an event known as the Eggnog Riot. (laughs) I should maybe say it wasn't one of the greatest riots in in Army history, but it was perhaps the least violent riot in Army history. Um, So this goes to the early cadet classes of West Point, Um, Where the army trained their officers in the early days of West Point there was kind of this free culture of students Enjoying alcohol being adults and learning the art of war Um, That was all until superintendent of West Point Colonel Sylvanus Thayer came into the picture Um, Thayer was not a fan of drinking. Thayer was uh, not a teetotaler, but he was someone who believed that his students should be disciplined uh, They should be behaving um, and he banned alcohol from the West Point campus Um, And this was not well received, but uh, being army cadets, they didn't have much choice. But it all came to a head on Christmas Eve of 1826, um, when it seems that a number of cadets snuck in several gallons of eggnog from the local town. (laughs) Um, And so Thayer had suspected foul play might happen. He posted several uh, night watch guards to stand at any of the dorms all of whom stood diligently waiting for a party to break out until midnight. And when at midnight, no parties had broken out, they decided they could go to bed. Um, But one of the guards awoke to the sound of raucous partying several floors above him at about four in the morning. And so the guard walked upstairs to confront other rowdy students. Uh, Upon telling them off and telling them that they would all be uh, in big trouble in the morning, he heard another party down the hallway, (laughs) and he proceeded to walk down several halls finding every door full of drunker and drunker West Point cadets. (laughs) Uh, So finally he got very upset with one cadet who would not remove his hat to show his face to identify himself, Um, and the guard threatened him bodily, which led to a little bit of an altercation. Uh, and as, as the story goes, and I found this in several places, one of which actually on US army.mil, like the U.S. Army's official site and another through the Smithsonian, um, that night guard left the the initial altercation unharmed and nothing bad had happened. But the altercation itself fired up all of the cadets. And so they went and they got their bayonets and weapons okay. and they went to go find the guard. And this is what caused the riot. And so all told... All the banisters and doorways in the North Dorm were almost completely destroyed. Almost a quarter of all cadets on campus were involved in this eggnog riot, including one Jefferson Davis, who you wow. might know as the president of the Confederacy.
0: Hmm. Um, Rings a bell. Yep. He was a contemporary. Of... So he let us know who he was right away.
1: No
0: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> eggnog rebellion. Yeah. So he apparently
2: was not in the thick of it. He wasn't the worst. Um, no one was. No one was killed. Some people were injured, um, and one of one of the guards uh, was actually threatened with death, but uh, not actually killed. Uh, and so Thayer was furious. He wanted to court martial a whole group of the students, but he didn't want to disgrace West Point and its uh, reputation. So he made a very quiet affair of it. Eventually, expelling nineteen students, not including Jefferson Davis. Um, it says that. One of his contemporaries was Robert E. Lee, who was present at the time of these riots, but did not in any way participate. Um, So Robert Lee and Jefferson Davis, both um, cadets during the eggnog riot at
0: West Point. So we've talked Hmm. a little bit about the West Point classes that included uh, Robert E. Lee. Yes, we have. (laughs) Um, And it seems like, you know, a lot of these like major Confederate uh, figures were like at West Point and like narrowly escaped you know some sort of disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually reminds me of how actually like, maybe like a couple weeks ago the Army versus Air Force football game. So prior to that, the uh, the West Point cadets were going to play a prank, and so they they tried to like steal the the falcons that are like the official mascots, but like the live falcons oh. that are the official mascots of the Air Force Academy. Um, And in the process, the Falcons became like really distressed and they were flapping around a lot in these like sort of dog crates Mm. and they actually got kind of injured. Um, They're not like seriously injured, but they, you know, they were bloody a little bit. Their wings were slightly injured. Mm. So it's actually just like the last couple of days become like this huge scandal where they're trying to figure out who it was and West Point's had to offer repeated apologies to the Air Force and just it's hugely embarrassing for everyone.
1: Mm.
0: It makes me think like, what if one of these guys that did this is like the leader of the sort of right-wing rebellion that's going to happen in the next like decade mm. <laughs> like, and that we could stop we could nip this in the bud right now by expelling him him or her but <laughs> a hun-
2: hundred years from now we'll look back and yeah. be like even before they brought the end of america <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> they stole
2: <laughs> Waiting for oh. a
1: time traveler to appear right now and be like, "Yes, do that." <laughs>
0: Why would they appear to us? Because <laughs> we have this because powerful platform. <laughs> you don't know that someday be your someday will be heard Stay in optimistic. every household. Yeah.
2: <laughs> One of the hundred people who will listen to this can change the world. <laughs> but so, I guess to that point, they did only expel nineteen people because they were afraid to expel more in this particular um affair. Um, <laughs> if you look it up on Google, Eggnog Riot, it, it comes up with the subtitle Incident.
0: Uh. <laughs> which
2: is what it's been classified as. But Thayer was pretty furious. And he actually thought the layout of the dorm was responsible because you could have a lot of students go into the dorm and then not really be accountable for anything and they could sneak in one door on the far side and get all the way to their rooms. So modern dorms that they, they actually tore down the north dorms as a result of this. And rebuilt them so that all the rooms have separate access. So if you mm-hmm. walk into your room, um, you're visibly walking right into your door, and so you can't like sneak in a back door of your dorm anymore. And they thought that this would deter um, like the smuggling in of alcohol or anything mm-hmm. else, and make everyone feel a little bit more like um, a little bit more guarded about what they would do on
1: campus. So since this fact is about eggnog, and we're after Thanksgiving, I think it can get a little Christmassy. Um, I looked more into eggnog and found something kind of cool and kind of close to home for us at least. So the recipe for salmonella-free eggnog with real eggs has been long known and was recently empirically confirmed by the Laboratory of Bacterial Pathogenesis and Immunology at Rockefeller University, which is just down the street from where we're recording right now. Uh, Spoiler alert, the booze is key. So, in an over five decades old tradition started by a microbiologist, Dr. Rebecca Lancefield and maintained by current lab head, Dr. Vincent Fischetti, uh, the lab makes a batch of eggnog before Thanksgiving, ages it for about a month in the lab's cold room. I'm not sure if that part of it's still true, um, but if they are, and if it is, and we're outing them, then I'm sorry, <laughs> it's usually not allowed, and uh, they then serve it at their holiday party in December. So in 2010, uh, the WMIC radio program, Science Friday, ran a little experiment in tandem with the Fischetti lab, wherein they basically purposefully added salmonella to a batch of their eggnog to mimic what might happen if a contaminated egg is included in the preparation of the eggnog. And over several weeks, uh, they tested the eggnog for evidence of salmonella. So in early tests, earlier in their time course, uh, there's still lots of bacteria, but between one and three weeks after preparing the eggnog, the salmonella was basically totally gone, probably wiped away by all the alcohol that was in the eggnog. Mm. So the caveats here, of course, small sample size. This was only done once. But based on that and also the many decades of this recipe being made and consumed by microbiologists who presumably know a little bit about, you know, bacteria and how it multiplies. Well, it would uh would Yeah, exactly. Uh, this recipe seems to be good for producing real eggnog that won't make you very sick. Um, and we'll post the recipe for this on the Instagram as well. So nice. make and consume at your own risk, but enjoy. <laughs> Happy holidays. It's a good
2: use of a plus four walk-in fridge, I think.
1: I, I think so. Certainly a lot more fun than just media and usual stuff we keep in there.
2: Best thing, I would always walk in in the summer. It'd be a hundred degree days, and I would just go oh, walk straight into in, the plus yeah. four. Yeah, stand there, <laughs> breathe in, stand there until like the alarm started going off for my body heat. Then...
0: <laughs> All right, thanks, Rob, and it's my turn. This week, I learned that last month in Minnesota, people called the cops on drunk and disorderly birds. Wow. Yeah. So, due to an earlier than usual frost in Gilbert, Minnesota. The berries, often eaten by birds in the area, had started to ferment earlier than usual as well. After birds began flying straight into people's windshields and falling straight out of trees, Gilbert, Minnesota (laughs) police had to issue a statement to quell people's concerns, and it goes like this. The Gilbert Police Department has received several reports of birds that appear to be, quote, under the influence, flying into windows, cars, and acting confused. There is no need to call law enforcement about these birds, as they should sober up within a short period of time. (laughs) However, we would like you to call the GPD if you see the following. Woodstock pushing Snoopy out of the doghouse for no apparent reason. (laughs) The Roadrunner jumping in and out of traffic. Big Bird operating a motor vehicle in an unsafe manner. (laughs) Or any other birds after midnight with Taco Bell menu items. Wow. (laughs) This is an actual press release (laughs) uh, from Gilbert BD. So it's thought that these birds normally migrate south before the berries start to ferment, um, and that it was the younger birds that were the most susceptible to intoxication uh, because their livers aren't as developed as those of the older birds. Mm. So this actually happens a lot though. Um, In 2012, a group of California scientists who performed necropsies on several flocks of a bird called uh, the cedar waxwing that had collided with hard surfaces found that all of them had recently gorged on overripe berries. So they published a paper entitled Strong Circumstantial Evidence for Ethanol Toxicosis in Cedar Waxwings" in the Journal of Ornithology and concluded that, quote, flying under the influence of ethanol, end quote, had led to their deaths. So some birds such as robins, cedar waxwings, and thrushes are all particularly vulnerable around this time of year because they're trying to eat as much food as they possibly can prior to their journey south of the winter. So if these you know, berries uh, start to ferment earlier, they'll just be going from bush to bush, eating more and more, getting drunker and drunker, um, and that's when they have a lot of the accidents. So some other, other examples. The Audubon Society of Portland, Oregon, apparently operates what is effectively a drunk tank for birds. Um, their <laughs> conservation director, Bob Salinger, says, sometimes they're picked up after crashing into windows. Others are just found disoriented on the ground. We will hold them in captivity until they sober up and then set them free. Um, Do they similar- give them,
1: like, tiny bird Advil and, like, a little <laughs> cup of, little I mean, cup of water? <laughs> I don't know.
0: Bird Pedialyte. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think this same guy uh, in this Washington Post article that I read... Uh, said that, um, people don't really know what to do when they see them like smash into windows or fall out of trees. Mm. But generally the best idea is to either like call like sort of a, a bird sanctuary if there's one nearby or any sort of mm. like wildlife conservation agency. Um, but usually they're fine if you just leave them alone and like, let them just sort of lay there and be quiet for a while is like actually his words. Because I'm <laughs> like, that's exactly what I need. I just need to lay <laughs> yeah. there in silence and recover.
2: Um, and you're like, "Don't stop talking to me!" No, sir. You have to leave the bar now. <laughs> no, I just want to stay.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the effects of alcohol on birds, though, don't doesn't just stop at flying into windows. So researchers from Oregon Health and Science University found that zebra finches have trouble producing their songs after drinking juice spiked with ethanol. As a result, the birds' songs were quieter and less organized. The point of the study wasn't just to, you know, get birds pissed and laugh at them. It was to try to understand (laughs) the effect of alcohol on human speech. Because we really don't understand precisely why alcohol should impair speech at all, but it does, kind of in the same way it does with birdsong. Although, interestingly, if you read the study, the zebra finches drank to a blood alcohol content at which most humans would be extremely impaired. But other than the song problems, they were fine. So birds can actually really hold their liquor. Um, But in researching this story, I found an article by James Hamblin in The Atlantic that opens... Birds might not be better than us after all. They have fancy hollow bones and the gift of graceful flight, but in the sense that we are all just floating around looking for fermented berries, there is existential parody.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I found another set of birds that were causing people some distress. Um, I've seen these actually on like, um, they they get into like compilations of like funny videos, and it's magpies that swoop down from trees, and just they, they hit people in the head. Oh. And it's kind of funny in the videos to like hit somebody in the back of the head, just like full on with their beak. Um, but they're actually really dangerous. They can cause like severe cuts and scratches, um, mm-hmm. and they attack like anyone indiscriminately. And so, uh, from September to November, especially in eastern Australia, it's what they call magpie madness. Um, and they did a, a quick survey of one town. And this was Griffith University in Australia. Um, they interviewed five thousand respondents. And the results showed that 96% of men and 75% of women had been victims of a magpie attack at some point in their life. Wow. Um, So they hang these signs, which I think are just unbelievable, that say, Look out! Exclamation point. Magpie swooping zone. (laughs) It's just a big picture of a magpie swooping, I suppose. And they do this as a protective behavior. So their nests are in the tree, and if a human walks too close, the magpie will, will swoop down and attack the human to discourage anyone from walking anywhere near it. And so uh, authorities tell people to dismount bicycles, to avoid the area for the entire fall, like don't use the streets that magpies nest on. Um, and they've called in zoologists to try to figure out ways to, to defend themselves. And the zoologists basically say, no, just don't go near them. Like <laughs> We don't want to disturb the magpies in their mating season. And it's important for us that they they nest and have young. So leave them alone.
1: Magpie's one, human's zero. Yeah.
2: (laughs) I was also looking into other uh, studies about animals who drink, and the Smithsonian had a piece a few years ago based on the idea that... uh, Well, based on one particular story, which was quite quite fun. Long story short, a moose got stuck in a tree eating fermented apples. Let's just cut to the chase. (laughs) And so this happened somewhere in Sweden. There was a moose just like completely in a tree and it couldn't get down. And it had gotten drunk eating apples that had had fermented. Um, And so the Smithsonian covered the story and said, what other animals get drunk on stuff? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so they actually documented a a few really interesting animals. Um, Tree shrews and and an animal called the slow loris that feed on fermented nectar of animals. Uh, In a 2008 PNAS study, um, hey, <laughs> PNAS
0: <laughs> but, uh, The proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences or are often P-N-A-S. referred to as PNAS or if you're in a hurry, PNAS yeah. <laughs> so,
2: we, so in a 2008 study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences or PNAS or PNAS, P-N-A-S. <laughs> the results showed that Lorises and tree shrews seem to have developed a mechanism to deal with the high level of alcohol and not get drunk. Uh, Believing that the amount of alcohol, this is a quote from uh, Andre Lachance, who is uh, one of the authors of the study, a microbiologist. The amount of alcohol we're talking about is huge, several times the legal limit in most countries. And they show no signs of impairment whatsoever. Um, There's a long-standing rumor that elephants can get drunk and be disorderly. And several studies have tried to find if this is true or not, and almost all of them have kind of debunked the idea that elephants would, could get drunk. Um, but one thing that, that kind of debunks the theory is that elephants, given the choice between ripe fruit on the tree and fruit that's on the ground fermenting, is they will always eat the ripe fruit first. In a, mm-hmm. in a 2006 study in the physiolog In a 2006 study in a physiological (laughs) and biochemical zoology journal.
1: I mean, they could just be smart and know that it's better to drink in a full stomach. (laughs)
2: Yeah, true, too. (laughs) Mm. But the the, the real kicker in this study was, if an elephant did eat rotten fruit, the amount that it would have to eat to get drunk would be 1,400 pieces of exceptionally fermented fruit. Mm. But there was one study I found as well, a 2006 methods paper uh, that looked at macaque monkeys, And I was really excited about this study because they got monkeys drunk, and I thought that can only be good. Very cool. (laughs) But what they found that was interesting was younger monkeys tended to drink more than older monkeys, um, believing that older monkeys were more concerned with social grooming and would not want to uh, miss social cues that would be important in the in the social life. And monkeys who were more loners drank more than monkeys that were part of an internal social circuit.
0: They're just like us. Thanks, Rob. So that brings us to our quiz. So the answers to the questions in this quiz all match a secret theme, and that theme is related to alcohol in some way. So I want you guys to try to guess the theme as early as possible. Wow. Okay. So question one, the name of what woodwind instrument means small in Italian, although it is called Ottavino in Italy? Piccolo. Piccolo. That's piccolo, yeah. Mm. And ottavino means little octave, uh, referencing the fact that the piccolo is always played one octave higher than it's written in the sheet music. Ah, okay. Cool. Piccolo, okay. Right, noted. So, question two. Statistically speaking, the hardest spare to pick up in bowling is the Greek church, or when pens are up at the four, six, seven, nine, and ten positions. What is the second hardest spare? hmm so it's really interesting to me that, that that's true so that there, when there's there's a possible uh i don't know how you say a frame where there are five pins up and that's the statistically hardest to knock them all down
2: that is interesting but i'm hmm. asking what is the second, second hardest
0: um so the hard is it is it a ten seven split yep Okay. 710 split. So, a lot of, most people think that that is the hardest. But mm. if you go through data from the Professional Bowling Association website, which keeps track of every frame ever, basically, oh. um, shows that a Greek church, which is a 467910 split, um, and is supposed to resemble the way a Greek church looks, like one of those old uh, churches where it's basically like, it's very hard to describe (laughs) just that they're like different, like sort of numbers of spires in different places. Mm. And they're said to resemble the locations of the pens in this, uh, in this particular setup. Oh. Um, and so a Greek church split is hit only once in every 390 attempts, and a 7-10 split is converted to a spare once every 145 attempts. Oh, wow. wow. So in raw averages, the typical professional bowler makes a 7-10 split at the same rate that a typical NFL kicker misses the extra point after a touchdown. So it's not very often, but you're still hoping for it every time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, question three. What Grammy-nominated singer, actress, and Barney and Friends alum once took a red-carpet picture in bad lighting, prompting the internet to suggest that the woman pictured was actually her twin sister named Poot, who had been kept in a basement her whole life until that very moment. (laughs) Wow.
2: So this is a conspiracy theory, too. (laughs)
0: Yes.
1: Oh, my. Okay. Okay,
2: okay. you said what... Uh... What winning actress?
0: Grammy nominated at
2: singer. Oh, Grammy nominated singer.
1: And actress. She and Barney and Friends, Friends. Alum. Okay.
2: okay, so right offhand, I've got Demi Lovato and Ariana Grande.
1: Does <sighs> does the name Poot have anything to do with the actual?
0: No, the name? name Poot is just like it's such a it's just a crazy picture. It's just like the lighting was like very bright, and it's like a weird angle, so she looks like kind of like a very pale, like, sort of dungeon creature. <laughs> like, this, this woman He's is never beautiful. seen this sun. This is a beautiful yeah. woman who just, an incredibly strange picture was taken of, and people <laughs> ran with this joke that she has a twin sister named Poot. Wow. <laughs> because of her <laughs> bizarre appearance in this picture.
2: Okay, so... Interesting. And I'm trying to think of just how old Barney is in order to say, like, how old this person could be. Because I, I think they could be, like, in their 40s and still have been a Barney alum can you give us any kind of hint as to the type of music?
0: Uh, pop music. Yeah. So like a uh, chart-topping. Fergie. No. <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I have no idea.
0: Uh, okay, yeah, so any—I'll tell you—it was one of the two people you guessed earlier. Oh,
2: is it? Is it Demi Lovato? It's Demi Lovato. Okay, nice. Yeah.
0: Um, this is the picture. I didn't
1: know there was a thing. Okay. So <laughs> I've seen that before. <laughs> Yeah, it's, this, is a,
0: this is a super weird but totally true fact. Um, so lots of Wikipedia pages were edited in response to this meme. One was they created the entry for Poot Lovato, uh, which said, that quote, she was released after what appears to have been years, if not decades. And also, quote, Rumor has it that she has the voice of a feral angel. <laughs> oh my god. The entry for Basement was edited to include Poot Lovato's old home. Wiki- <laughs> <laughs> the, Wikipedia, the, was the Wikipedia article for Outside was edited to read the place Poot Lovato went after she left the basement. <laughs> and hashtag free poot trended on Twitter. Oh my god. <laughs> I
2: can't believe I missed it.
1: Uh. Okay. So to recap, we have Piccolo, seven ten split, mm-hmm. and Demi Lovato.
2: Or Poot. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, the answer was Demi Lovato, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay, Demi. So Pico, Demi, I'm getting like prefixes.
2: What does it say in the Mad Hatter's hat? What size is it? Uh,
0: 10 and 3 quarters? No, something that's, like that's th- Hogwarts.
1: That's <laughs> 9 and 3 quarters. And three quarters yeah. <laughs> but there's definitely a fraction.
0: Okay. Yeah. All right, guys, let me All give you right, another, another one. one. Sure, sure. All right. So question four. What was the name of the company John D. Rockefeller founded and that made his fortune estimated at $400 billion adjusted for inflation? He was um, Standard Oil, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. us answer Standard Oil. Um, so in 1911, uh, Standard Oil uh, was the subject of a court case, and the Supreme Court ruled that it had to be dismantled as it was in violation of federal antitrust laws. So just to give you an idea of how large this company was, Standard Oil was broken up into the companies that later became ExxonMobil and Chevron separately, among <laughs> others. Oh my gosh. So these companies remain some of the, you know, largest in the world. Uh, and they are the basically um, different chunks of this original company, Standard Oil. Wow. Which produced at the time ninety percent of all the oil that uh, was used in America. Wow. That's incredible. And so I, I didn't even really know this. I, I sort of have always known that John you know, the Rockefeller family was very, very wealthy. Um, I didn't realize that they were, that John D. Rockefeller in particular was by far the richest person that has ever lived, you know, just for inflation. So, like Ooh. I said, his fortune was estimated at $400 billion at its peak. That is in 2018 dollars. Wow. Um, when he was a kid, he apparently said that his dream was to make $100,000, which at the time was like $2.5 <laughs> So... <laughs> <laughs> met and raised. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Okay, so you can <laughs> add crazy. standard to your list of answers. Okay. I'm
1: still getting like units. Standard oils. You
0: know, yeah. Piccolo, pico.
1: Right, pico, demi. Um. Let's see. Yeah. I don't know. Um. Okay.
2: So, how is
1: that down?
0: Okay, guys. I'm I think it's on. the right area, yep, but it's not
1: ringing any bells. Yeah. Keep mm-hmm. going.
0: All right, guys. Question five: What name can apply to a brand of ice cream or a brand of condoms? Ah, uh, yes. Magnum. Magnum. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that is correct. Any closer? Mm. This is ugh, mag. No. No. All right, question 6. And what systems of measurement do you find the short ton, TON, the long ton, TON, and the ton, TONNE, respectively?
2: Those are all metric.
0: No. Really? They are not all metric. Darn.
2: No. Um, in what system or what systems? What
0: systems of measurement? Each oh, respectively.
2: Each respectively. Sorry. So one. Let's say the sh- the short ton is a metric weight. Is that correct? I'll buy no. it. No.
1: All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I will buy it. Um, is the <laughs> long ton metric?
0: Long ton is a is metric, but it is a mm-hmm. non-SI unit that is compatible with the metric system. Okay. So Ooh. I'll I'll say the answer is for the for the T O N N E is also known as the metric ton. So when you hear people say metric ton, they're saying M E T R I C space T O N N E. Um so that okay. that is two thousand two hundred and four mm. pounds and in the metric oh. system. So you have the short ton and the long ton left.
2: Um okay. I don't I should know more systems of measure than I, yeah, guess like, I, I do. Yeah, like I
1: I don't know of other ones to be honest.
0: <laughs> so there's uh, I'll tell you that The short-ton and the long-ton are both in U.S. customary units. That's the system used in the United States. Okay. Based on uh, sort of English sort of, you know, old-timey measurements. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then in the 1800s, the United Kingdom came up with this other kind, and that's what the long-ton is part of. Huh. Like, Have you ever heard, I'll just tell you, have you ever heard of imperial? (laughs) I have. Yeah. Never in context. (laughs) Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. I just know the term. So this is the
0: imperial units of measurement. Um, oh. like, you know, foot, pound, okay. stuff like that. That's where they came from.
2: So, Imper- so- Imperial, at least, sounds alcohol-related. Yeah. Um, okay, so... Is that like
1: a brand, a variety? An or
2: Imperial stout was like a malted beer that came from Russia.
1: Mm, right.
0: Um, so, so far you have Piccolo, 710 Split, Demi Lovato, Standard Oil, Magnum, and Imperial. Hmm. Could they all be beers? <laughs>
1: They could. I'm trying to think if they're like, if they're like names for certain, like for like a different, a certain variety of liquor, but nothing's Um. catching on. Um. (laughs) Yeah. Keep it rolling.
0: All right, guys. So I'll tell you at this point, I've given you things that are increasing in size. Question seven: What is the name shared by a Babylonian king mentioned in the Bible who is nicknamed the Destroyer of Nations? and Morpheus' vessel in the sci-fi trilogy the matrix
2: that's nebuchadnezzar and i i get the theme now
0: okay what is it
2: okay so i I honestly didn't know any of the first ones but they make sense so they are container they're bottle sizes yeah um uh, i think specifically for wine for wine yeah Yeah. so nebuchadnezzar is a massive massive bottle and then a magnum is a size smaller or no Uh, there's something in between Well, there's
0: definitely it's definitely more than a size smaller so magnum is two bottles Basically, it's uh, 1.5 liters. Oh, okay. Um, whereas a bottle of wine is, is... A standard bottle of wine is standard. 750 mils. And
2: then the piccolo would be like the little... Yeah, it's actually... Oh, and then a 7 okay.
0: is actually another name for a piccolo. Oh, uh, really? That's pretty obscure. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, so th- knowing that, that will help you with question eight, possibly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nope. Um, <laughs> what is the name of the largest spider in the world? Uh, it shares its name with some some other person who is very large and many many of the names of wine bottle sizes are from the Bible. I want to say but, uh, it's Goliath it is Goliath yeah oh, so it's yeah. the Goliath bird-eater spider mm. um, <laughs> And <laughs> <That's> uh, <right. laughs> I in my notes here I have written normally where I have some interesting story about it. I have it's a big damn spider <laughs> 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 Not that much else to it. Um, interestingly I guess that it doesn't actually eat birds very often or I mean rarely at all Um, um, but it is really big and it's really scary looking wow (laughs) Fair enough. Well, that's terrifying. So, um, as you guys figured out at the end there, all the answers to the questions in this quiz are names of different sizes of wine bottles. They are in increasing size and volume from 187 milliliters in a piccolo to 27 liters in a Goliath. Wow. Whoa. cow. <laughs> yep. That's a lot. So, that's it for this alcohol themed episode of Facts Machine. Don't forget to give us five stars on whatever podcasting platform you listen on and leave us a review to let us know what you think. And while you're on your phone, yes, you there listening on your phone, follow us on Instagram at Fax Machine Pod and on Facebook at Fax Machine Podcast. Cheers.
1: Uh, so to put this in context, the average frontier settler drank a reported 10.5 ounces of hard cider per day, hence alcoholic haze. So into this habitually Hey.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what? Alcoholic haze. Hey. Hey.
1: All right.